Hello. I'm Blake. And I'm Josh. And you're listening to Southern Haunts Fatality, where we talk about hauntings, cryptids, and other spooky things located here in the South. So Blake, where's your story taking us today? This story is actually about the Raleigh Capitol building, so it's right in my backyard. Ooh, a North Carolina story. I do love North Carolina. It's probably my favorite state. It'll be our first North Carolina story so far, which isn't saying much because this is only our <laughs> second episode. True. True that. I'm sure there'll be some more, though. Definitely. North Carolina is pretty spooky. You want to go ahead and kick us off with yours? Sure. So the Raleigh Capitol Building is said to be one of the most haunted structures in all of Raleigh, North Carolina. We recently went on a ghost tour where the guide said that the guards for the Capitol Building no longer remain overnight because something super creepy always happened there. There are rumors that the lights randomly turn on and off completely by themselves and never stay on or off for very long in any specific room. On the tour, we only saw one light on, which was located in the governor's office. They say this is for security reasons more than anything, but maybe they are appeasing a ghost under the guise of security? They might just be trying to appease the people and voters to be like, see, I'm working. (laughs) Really, they're not there. That's true. The capital of North Carolina has had a rough start as the location has been moved two times before physically, and the first capital was actually located in New Bern, North Carolina, and that location currently stands as a museum. Just a very quick history of North Carolina. Colonial North Carolina was one of the poorest North American colonies. The exports included lumber, tar, turpentine, pork, and a few other produces. In 1729, North Carolina became a crown colony. The king appointed a royal governor, of North Carolina, and it was a man named William Tyron. The official title was Royal Governor William Tyron, and in 1765, he and his family brought architect John Hawkes from London to design and build the Georgian-style structure that was completed in 1770, dubbed Tyron Palace. Tyron Palace served as the first permanent capital of North Carolina and home to the Tyron family. Unfortunately, this location on the water made it quite vulnerable to attacks from British ships during the Revolutionary War. During this time, legislature rotated between six different locations, which made things much more difficult once North Carolina decided to relocate the capital's permanent location, as each spot felt that it was the best location. The whole thing got so out of hand that even George Washington took notice and wrote about it in his diary. He's like... Y'all, it's getting a little ridiculous here. You've changed capitals eight times this year. Just commit already. Just six. When Raleigh was chosen, everywhere else, of course, was super irritated. And a rumor began that the land purchased to make the capital grounds on, it had been previously owned by a Wake County man named Isaac Hunter, who owned a tavern where he prepared a mean cherry bounce, which is a sugary brandy-based cocktail. And the drink was such a hit with politicians at the time that... It was a popular meeting spot in the Capitol building, and they joked the Capitol building had to be within 10 miles of Hunter's Tavern. Was it really a joke, though? That's a good question. Not sure. I guess they like to party. In actuality, the state's population had moved westward, and in 1788, a state convention voted to fix the Capitol within 10 miles of Joel Lane's plantation. He's often referred to as the father of Raleigh. A committee later purchased a thousand acres and a plan for rally was drawn up based on the then nation's capital of Philadelphia. I forgot Philadelphia was once the nation's capital. 
I also forgot. I guess it's been a long time since I've been in a history class. Right? It's a fun little refresher for us all. It should also be noted that three years beforehand, North Carolina's flagship university, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, was established just down the road. Oh, side note. Guess how much they paid an acre back then for the 1,000 acres? Per acre? Per acre. I am going, I I don't even, off the top of my head, I can't think of what it would be right now. I'm guessing like around the city, which didn't exist then, now would be like, I don't know, like 100,000 an acre or something now. But back then, I'm guessing it was $500 an acre or something. I don't have how much it is like valued today, but back then they paid $2.75 an acre. Well, if the same family owned it from then until now, that family is incredibly wealthy. It sounds like a bargain, personally. Yeah. That's <laughs> generational wealth that they hung on to that. True. The reason that they wanted to put the university so close to the capital is that way it was only a day's ride between the two. So for some reason, they wanted the college to be super close to the capitol building. So back then, were they, I don't remember what year we're in here, were we in like Revolutionary War type time frame? 1788. It so was post-Revolutionary like- War. So they were like still riding horses and buggies and stuff. Yes. Okay. Correct. So construction of a state house began on the town's central square in 1792. When it was completed in 1794, Raleigh was said to be a city of streets without houses. This is probably due to the population being only 600 people at the time. So it's sort of like the uh, field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. And it took a bit for the rest of it to come. They're like, well, we got all the blocks in. Uh, We just need buildings and people. It really did. It had to catch up to its statelyhood or its capital namesake, I suppose. But Raleigh did slowly build itself into the city we know today. And this building served as the capital until it burned down in 1831. On the morning of June 21st, 1831, the state house was being fireproofed following several disastrous fires in Raleigh. So they were trying to save the capital building from all these fires that had been occurring. And workmen were laying sheets of zinc across the roof, and they left the project alone with a boiling pot of lead solder, and somehow it spilled, setting the entire roof ablaze over the western side. Wait, so they were trying to fireproof it, and while doing that, they literally set it on fire? Yes. That's pretty bad. Within three hours, the fire consumed and destroyed the entire building. That almost sounds like something out of Dumb and Dumber with like, hey, can you go fireproof this? And then they accidentally light the whole thing on fire instead, like the complete 360 of what they were supposed to do. Oh my gosh, yes. Out of all days it could burn down, that was the day they burned it down when they were fireproofing it. Yep, just seems a little ironic. The cornerstone of the present state capitol was constructed on the site of the former state house, and it was laid in 1833, and the building was completed in 1840. The current North Carolina state capitol cost... $532,682, including furnishing, and it is one of the finest and best preserved examples of a major civic building in the Greek Revival architecture style. The stone is from a quarry in southeastern Raleigh. It was hauled to the site on horse-drawn experimental railroad, one of North Carolina's first railways. What is horse-drawn experimental railroad? It sounds like a crazy band name to me. It does sound like a great band name. We're Horace John Experimental Railroad. (laughs) That would be epic. I believe they used horses instead of the train car, but I didn't actually look into it. I picture it as like, instead of a steam engine, it's horses on the front of it. And then they're pulling something that's still on the track, like a normal train, but with horses at the front. Hmm. But I don't know how that would work. It seems like they'd trip or 
hurt their ankles on a normal track. Who knows? It's kind know. of interesting. I never heard of that. We'll have to look into that and potentially get back to y'all. But the interior walls are of stone and brick, and the massive original wooden truss system still bears the weight of the roof in the original building, or the second constructed original building. This rotunda centerpiece is a year 1970 copy of Antonio Canova's original statue of George Washington, which has been displayed in the original state house from 1820 to 1831. The original sculpture was commissioned to honor and even glorify Washington by depicting him in a Roman general's uniform with a tunic, tightly fitting body armor, and a short cape fastened at the shoulder. The figure's short hair style is that of a Roman officer. Shown with a pen in hand, the seated Washington is writing in Italian, by the way, the first words of his farewell address as president on a tablet. This sculpture has a crazy story. The original marble sculpture was dedicated on December 24, 1821. The original 1821 monument cost $10,000. It was originally commissioned out of Carrera Marble by Antonio Canova. And unfortunately, it was destroyed in the fire whenever the original Capitol building burned down. Almost 100 years later, the original model for the sculpture was discovered at the Canova Museum in Pasagno, Italy. Sorry if I said that wrong. And in 1910, a plaster replica was received in Raleigh as a gift from the Italian government whenever they had heard what had happened to the beautiful, like, amazing sculpture that they had commissioned. If that sculpture had not been destroyed in that fire, it would be literally one of Raleigh's most priceless artifacts. That's what you get for trying to fireproof your buildings. Oh my goodness. Obviously, it wasn't planned as any kind of insurance fraud if they left all of their amazing things inside. Yeah. In 1925, the General Assembly appointed a commission to secure a new marble replica of the original sculpture now that they had had the plaster cast. The commissions had the authority to obtain the replacement with the cost paid by private donations and subscriptions. But the project was stalled until 1963, when the state had time and funds to have the statue once again produced in marble. And in 1970, a Venetian sculptor, Romano Bio produced the marble carving from the original cast, and it was installed atop a pink granite pedestal and now sits in the rotunda of the Capitol building here in Raleigh. But enough about Washington's amazing sculpture. Let's go back to the history, starting with the Civil War. During the war, the Capitol was the center of political activity and military command for the administration of North Carolina, at the time Governor Zebulon Vant. The building was used as a supply depot, and Raleigh women met in the rotunda to make uniforms, haversacks, and bandages. Confederate troops came to the capital for training and were sent to the front lines from the capital. I can imagine the emotional energy left behind in a place like this during a time like that. Raleigh emerged from the Civil War unscathed due to the efforts of two former North Carolina governors, David Swain and William Graham. In January 1865, Union General William Sherman began marching his troops north from Savannah. Sherman's goal was to join Ulysses Grant's forces in Virginia, destroying anything of Confederate military value along the way. I just want to say this is this was pure coincidence, but General William Tecumseh Sherman is also a character in my story today. Are you serious? He is. That's crazy. Keep listening and find out. 
Oh my goodness. Now I'm excited to hear your story even more so. So in February, Sherman captured the South Carolina capital of Columbia, destroying most of the city. Fearing the same fate for the state of North Carolina's capital, Swain and Graham, in concert with Governor Zebulon Vance, traveled to Sherman to ask that he spare Raleigh. Side note, I always wondered where the name Zebulon for a town came from, and now I know. It sounded really futuristic to me for the time for some reason. Yeah, I thought it was uh, like a Martian community. It's like Xenon, girl of the 21st century. That's Xenon. Yeah. Not Zebulon. I know, but they both sound so futuristic. So Sherman agreed on condition that his troops meet no resistance. And on the morning of April 13th, 1865, Sherman and his troops entered the nearly deserted city. Quote, it was evacuated from a lack of response, actually due to Sherman. He had sent a response, but it just didn't arrive in time. Like he sent something saying to evacuate the city? He sent something about, yes, it's okay if uh, you guys just don't meet me with any fighting. Yeah. And they didn't get the notice, so they just had the entire city evacuated, Uh, which pretty much complied with everything that he said anyway. And they found out later that Raleigh never received what Sherman had said. I guess the postal service was a little slow back then. Was there a postal service back then? I think so. Or was it like pigeons? No. I think they delivered letters and stuff still back then. It was just by horseback. Wasn't that right? I think so. I feel like stuff would get lost during the wars because the messages would not I mean, make it. the guys carrying him may have been killed. Yeah. <laughs> That's very possible. Yeah. Or they're like, I can't make it there because there's a giant war and I'm not going to ride my horse through the middle of a battle to deliver this letter. Exactly. So, side note, there were some skirmishes that occurred after, as Sherman and his troops entered, but Raleigh was not held accountable because it was only like a few leftover soldiers who were fighting. Sherman and his troops immediately set up a headquarters in the governor's mansion, and only a few days later, the remainder of the Confederate military forces surrendered to General Sherman at the Bennett Farmhouse near present-day Durham. I think that house is still there is like a historical thing you can visit, isn't it? It sure is. I just didn't know how much history I should go into, so I didn't touch on that today. I remember driving by like the exit on the interstate, and there's something about the uh, Bennett house. I don't remember what the sign said, but I remember seeing it on a sign now. Now I'll have to look into it and see if there's any ghostly hauntings or anything around it. We'll have to actually visit it. Yeah. As you can imagine, any place used as a hub during the Civil War has a lot of spiritual energy tied into it. So let's get into the spooky stories. We have quite a few from a local news station who interviewed Mr. Jackson, a night watchman, who has many reported happenings, specifically the elevators going up and down on their own, footsteps, breaking glass, the strong stench of cigar smoke, and ghostly screams of a woman who was said to be murdered on the Capitol building steps. I could not find an article on this, but it is a well-known lore so it could just be lore in that case it may never really happen at least from what we know it could be but it could have happened so long ago that it wasn't really like reported that's true because apparently this building is very old one evening jackson heard the tinkling sound of a window breaking on the second floor and when he went up there to inspect and clean up the broken glass he could find no broken glass anywhere in any of the rooms Another evening, while Mr. Jackson was at the reception desk on the first floor, he felt the pressure of a cold hand on his shoulder, so he swung around in his chair to find no one behind him, who was living anyway. 
Civil War soldiers have been seen marching back and forth in the windows of the building, and lights, of course, frequently turn on and off by themselves. The Rhine Research Center has conducted its own investigation inside of the Capitol building in 2003. They captured many disembodied voices in the rotunda, library, and house chambers, along with quite a few orbs in unexplainable locations, like the balcony of the house chamber where nothing reflective could have created them. Hundreds of voices can be heard murmuring in the evenings, and according to the staff, the voices can get so loud at night that they have to leave in order to get some peace and quiet. A female can be heard crying in the library, along with some soft Civil War era music, and loud wheezing has been heard on a few of the staircases. I have a few stories from the other employees that have worked there who were interviewed. I closed up my office, and when I walked out of, into the rotunda, I looked down and I could still hear activity. Not like chains shaking or anything scary. It was doors opening, footsteps, and voices. I walked downstairs, and everything was silent, and I realized I was completely alone. From Duchy Sexsmith in the Department of Cultural Resources. I was frightened for no reason at all. I felt the hair rising on the back of my neck. I was cold, clammy, and I felt like I had broken out into a cold sweat. From Kathy Jackson, State Capital Education Coordinator. The staffers here know that these late-night events are real, even without a ton of hard evidence to support it. Mr. Raymond Beck, who was the curator of the building and history museum specialist back in the spring of 1981, decided one night to stay late and work on a restoration project in the library, which was on the third floor. With the lights on and the radio softly playing, he worked at his desk. Sometime between 10 and midnight, he got up to put some books away on the shelf. He was stopped short when he suddenly felt a presence silently looking over his shoulder. When he turned around, no one was seen to be there, but he still felt an uncomfortable presence in the room with him, so he closed up the library and left quickly. Mr. Beck's boss, Administrator Sam Townsend, about five months later, shared with Beck that he, too, had felt a strong presence standing behind him looking over his shoulder while working in the same library. In 1976, while preparing the paperwork needed to reopen the newly renovated Capitol building, Townsend, while sitting in the governor's suite by the south entrance, heard keys jingling in the north entrance door, the sound of the door opening and shutting, and footsteps coming across the stone floor. Thinking that it was the then Secretary of State, Tad Ure, I think is how you'd say it, whose office was diagonally across from the governor's suite by the north door, Townsend came out to meet him. Much to his surprise, no one was there in Ure's office. Just then, Townsend heard keys rattling in the south door entrance. He found that all the doors except the north door were locked down securely. Townsend's permanent office was located on the second floor in the northeast corner of the Senate chamber in the office of the clerk. He worked in his office three nights a week because he could avoid distractions that could plague him during the day. He has heard unmistakable, distinct footsteps coming from the committee room in the southwest corner of the Senate chamber towards his little office. When he went to greet whoever it was, no one was ever there. For several years, he heard pacing in the committee room until a coffee machine was moved into the room temporarily. When Townsend arrived one evening and opened the door to the Senate chamber, he briefly saw an apparition standing in the doorway, which caused him to jump back, and it dissolved quickly, as quickly as it did appear. Interesting. I was unable to find any specific pictures, but there were some recordings 
from our local news station whenever they did a investigation on the Capitol building, which was very cool. They did one in 93 and then 2003. Our local just regular news station did a paranormal investigation? Yeah, I think it was like Channel 10 or something. Wow, that's crazy. I couldn't imagine our local weatherman doing a paranormal investigation i don't think it was the weatherman but definitely they followed the ryan research center in in 2003 and then i think they did their own little investigation in the 90s that's interesting that's a lot more interesting than most of the stuff you see on local news stations i wish they would do more investigations it's pretty cool now all we hear is about people getting shot exactly (laughs) and the weather of course and the weather shout out to weather west (laughs) oh my goodness josh's favorite weatherman Our other business requires very much so that we know exactly what's happening with the weather. So we watch the weather a lot here. But I believe that is everything I have about the history of the Capitol building. And it is a very beautiful historic building. So if you ever get the chance to swing by in Raleigh, even at night, see if there's any other lights other than just the governor's office on. And there are also some cool ghost tours you can do. If you don't want to do a self-guided tour, they offer some ghost tours downtown Raleigh. I think seasonally. I don't know if they're doing it year-round or not. I think it might be more of like September, October time frame. But they do offer ghost tours that go to the building. They don't take you in the building, though. I think you have to go during the daytime to go inside the building. And check out that statue of George Washington. Yeah. I would like to see the statue. I've never been in the building. I've only seen it from the outside. I want to go see it, too, considering it's so legendary. And maybe we'll see the ghost of the person who was stabbed or murdered on the uh, front porch. Yeah, I can't remember if she was stabbed in the yard and dragged herself to the steps or uh, she was killed on the steps. Mm. But apparently it's said to have happened. But she supposedly haunts that area. Yep, she'll haunt the front of the building. All right. Uh, Would you like me to get into my story now? Yes, where are you taking us today? Well, my story actually has some overlap with yours more than I thought it would since we didn't really plan our stories together. We kind of come up with our stories and then we surprise each other with our stories more or less. Yeah, So mine does feature General William Tecumseh Sherman. That's so crazy. And mine also has some other Civil War ties, which I was thinking now we're early on in our podcast journey here. I'm realizing that a lot of ghost stories in the South do revolve around the Civil War because it was a major event in the South that other parts of the United States didn't really experience, right? There weren't as many large and brutal wars as occurred in the south especially the east because not only was the civil war it's also the american revolution which occurred in the eastern state or the eastern coast basically that's very true and just so much turmoil and everything happening during the civil war and it really left a horrible mark on so many people and the lives and i'm sure as we do more episodes we'll probably have a lot of civil war stories in general especially of all the true. forts there's a lot of haunted civil war forts in the south so many good forts to research (laughs) i think most of the more like battles though the like more brutal battles i think most of them were more like virginia like close to where the front lines were like virginia near like dc area that's true because i remember when we visited that or visited dc and stuff they always talk about that and i feel like there was a lot of major battles in virginia whereas some of the stories we have are in like the deeper south where maybe there weren't quite as many major battles but there's still were some battles and certainly a lot of confederate soldiers at the time a lot of impact like emotionally amongst all the families for sure right all right well i'll get into my story so my story will be taking us to savannah georgia beautiful i love savannah so much it is nice and we got to visit it a couple years ago for a long weekend and we did a ghost tour there and it was amazing absolutely fantastic 
Highly recommend. The place I'm talking about today, it was actually on our ghost tour. (gasps) Cool. We didn't go inside of it, so they told us some story about it from the outside. Mm, I pretty sure i forgot all of the stories so i'm excited to hear your stories well i want to go back and go inside yeah for sure all right so anyways yeah my story's in savannah georgia which fun fact is the oldest city in the state of georgia Huh. and my story will be about a place called the marshall house hotel which is an iconic hotel in the city and it's also one of the oldest hotels in the city i think what i found is I think it might have been the second oldest. I think there was one other hotel there that is actually older, but I believe it was the second oldest hotel in the city, and it still operates as a hotel today. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so the Marshall House is you know, somewhat famous, maybe not worldwide famous, but for Savannah and the South, it is a famous hotel, and it's been featured on multiple television shows for both its beauty and history, but also its hauntings. And honestly, I think it's been featured more for its hauntings than its beauty and history, although it is beautiful and historic. I mean, the hauntings are the grabbers. That's true. But I'm going to start off with some history before I get into the hauntings, because that's how we like to do things here. Mm, I do love some history. So the Marshall House was started by a local businesswoman named Mary Marshall, who herself has a very deeply rooted history in Savannah and in early America in general. So Mary's grandparents settled in Savannah during the early days of the founding of the colony of Georgia, which was founded in 1733. During the American Revolution, Mary had relatives fighting on both sides of the war during the uh, battle called the Siege of Savannah, which took place in 1779. This was a battle between American colonial troops, who had some help from French troops, and they were fighting against the occupying British forces, who had previously taken control of Savannah. So I was thinking that's some pretty deep roots that she has, that she has relatives fighting on both the British and American sides. Her family is very deeply rooted in uh, American history and American Southern history in particular. That's pretty intense. Yeah. All right. So I have some more history on Mary. So her father, a guy named Gabriel Lever, and I may be pronouncing that wrong, but he was a cabinet maker who acquired several prime pieces of property in Savannah before his death in 1795. And I did find something, several things actually, that said he shrewdly acquired it. I couldn't really figure out what exactly they meant by that or like how he shrewdly acquired it. Hmm. He said he shrewdly acquired these properties, but a lot of times it seems like, especially in that day and age, that term was used often with businessmen, maybe because they did use things that are probably not moral to acquire properties, but it was described as him shrewdly acquiring these properties. Like gambling? No, I was thinking more like someone owes him, so he takes the property type of thing or... oh. Usually like some bad way he took it, some way that wouldn't be very moral. Ah, so quite frowned upon. Could be, but I don't know. They just described it as shrewdly, so. Interesting. I just thought I would mention that. I don't, it may may mean nothing. It may just mean he was a savvy businessman and acquired it. Nothing was wrong. I don't know. Hmm. Anyways, though, he amassed quite a fortune for his family during this lifetime. Following his death, Mary was his sole child and inherited her father's sizable estate. And she used that newfound wealth to continue to buy and develop land growing her wealth tenfold during her lifetime. Impressive. And during the railroad boom of the 1840s and 1850s, Savannah doubled in both size and population. Now I have a fun fact for you that's kind of loosely related to this story. During Savannah's building boom, many cemeteries were moved to the outskirts of town. It's believed that while most of the headstones were moved, many of the bodies were not moved. Instead, they were left behind and they just moved the headstones. In other words, Savannah is a city built on the dead, literally. 
that is like the main way to start most ghost stories is that they move the headstones but not the bodies right so you could build a brand new house there but it's built on top of a bunch of bodies and you're like why is my house haunted i just built this in 2023 lovely yeah so nowhere is safe downtown savannah apparently Hmm. safe from hauntings that is ah not trying to you know give a side stab or back stab to savannah that's not safe don't visit I feel like whenever we were in Savannah, we heard that there's a street specifically that floods, and anytime it floods, they'll find human bones that have washed up. I don't remember that, but that's pretty scary. Horrifying. During the building boom, Mary saw a need for accommodations and housing and decided to build the iconic Marshall House Hotel in 1851. And the hotel was opened in 1852 as one of Savannah's first hotels. Just two years after opening... The Marshall House would be used as a temporary hospital in 1854 during a yellow fever outbreak. It would be used for the exact same reason again in 1876. So a lot of yellow fever outbreaks in the South at that time, apparently. Oh, sad. Yeah, it kind of reminds you of modern day where they turn things that weren't supposed to be hospitals into hospitals. Kind of flashback to 2020. Yeah, that's very true. Oh, gymnasiums of every school are going to be haunted in like a decade. Maybe. (laughs) So between these two yellow fever outbreaks in 1854 and 1876, the hotel would be used yet again as a hospital, but for a completely different reason this time. And that reason would be war. Sad. The Civil War, that is, which lasted from 1861 to 1865. On December 21st, 1864, General William Tecumseh Sherman, there it is. Oh my goodness. And his army of 62,000 Union soldiers commandeered the hotel as they entered and occupied the city of Savannah. The Union soldiers occupied the hotel until the war ended in 1865. During this time, they used the hotel as a hospital for wounded soldiers. And if you visit the hotel today on the third floor, you can view a collection of original prints, newspapers, letters, and documents reflecting Savannah's experience during the Civil War. Now I'm going to do a little bit of fast forwarding in this story. So I'm going to fast forward 12 years to 1877. And this is the year that Mary Marshall passed away at the age of 93. Dang. So for that time, she lived 1877. So she lived a pretty long life considering a lot of people didn't live near that long in that day and age. And medicine was very primitive. Pretty good life too, considering all of her land and fancy hotel. She definitely lived a life of luxury. So yeah, she passed away in 1877 at the age of 93, and to this date, Mary is considered a prominent figure through much of Savannah's history, and during her lifetime, she was considered to be very successful among Savannah's elite financial and social circles. If you decide to visit the hotel today, you will see an 1830 oil painting of Mary hanging in the lobby behind the reception desk. And on the topic of the painting, I did find a story that said one day a young girl was standing at the hotel with her father and pointed to the painting of Mary Marshall and told her father that she had seen the lady in the hallway. Mind you, Mary had been dead for over a century at this point. That would be so trippy. Yeah. Because you know kids see so much crazy stuff. I know that father's like, well, we're not staying here. Let's let's go to the Holiday Inn. That's a good dad. (laughs) We're going to stay at this bougie historic hotel, but we're going to go stay at the Red Roof Inn now. Yeah. It's not on it, at least. Just don't touch anything. (laughs) Well, I think that's a good segue to get us into the paranormal side of the Marshall House. So let's get into the paranormal. So there are a lot of different accounts of ghost sightings at the Marshall House. I honestly had a hard time figuring out where to start. There were just so many stories and first-person accounts, like tons of them. Wait, and you want to stay here? I would, because so many people have said they've seen ghosts here. That's not just like a few people. It's a lot. So it's like, 
if you stay there, there's a high chance you might experience something. So anyways, lots of ghost stories. It's hard to pick out which ones to do and which order to do them in. I found that a lot of the ghost stories here seem to relate back to the hotel's use as a hospital during the Civil War. So I'm going to start with those. To start out, medicine in the 1800s wasn't quite what it is today, as you can probably imagine. Oh, yeah? In fact, it was downright primitive compared to today. So being a Civil War hospital, many of the patients brought there had traumatic injuries and many died there either because of the injuries or because of the surgery and attempted treatment of the injuries. And I use surgery loosely in this case because the common treatment for many serious injuries and wounds was amputation. Just hacking limbs off right and left. Yep, that's pretty much uh, the job of a doctor there. Uh. I'm not even sure if it was a doctor that was doing it. It could have just been some person. More than likely. So the amputation process was brutal as at that time anesthesia wasn't readily available. So they usually gave soldiers a swig of alcohol and then they held them down and sawed off the body part. Is that where the term bite the bullet comes from? Because they would have them bite down on something hard while I think they that, did it? I think that too. I didn't mention it here, but I think they did have them bite something. They'd like take a swig of alcohol, bite onto something, then they start cutting their limb off or whatever it is they're cutting off. I wish they would be more generous with the alcohol back then for their sake. I know. I guess they'd like, we don't have all day. Just take a few drinks and go. Horrible. I did find one thing saying, because I looked up like what they used for anesthesia back then or pain medicine, because I knew there was more than just alcohol. And I found something else they commonly used there. There may have been some like some of the more elite social circles. Maybe they had access to things that were closer to what we have today, like maybe some opium derivatives or something but like i found they also use blackberry tea i thought that's like oh man <laughs> i don't know if that'd do much like that's... i don't think this blackberry tea is doing it it tastes great but this really that, hurts that's horrible yeah. poor things so alcohol is probably the best bet mm. so a lot of amputations needless to say many arms and legs were amputated at the marshall house and in fact one story said when the hotel was being restored in the late 1990s workers were replacing damaged floorboards downstairs when they found human remains And the area instantly became a crime scene, but it was soon learned that the downstairs had once been the hospital's surgery room, which led historians to believe the bones which were discovered came from amputated limbs of Civil War soldiers. Oh my god. Limb pit. Limb pit. Yeah, they're just sawing them off, throw them over there. Oh my god. And apparently left them there. Like bricked them into the wall. So I did a little more investigating into this story because I thought that seems like a lot. That, the Civil War, you know, was a long time ago, and this was in the 1990s they found these bones. So I thought, they found these in the 1990s, and it seems like a story like that would make news, right? You find a bunch of Civil War bones. I'd hope so. And there was like, this is the 1990s, there wasn't as much social media, but there was TV, newspapers, there was ways to spread information to the masses. And you yeah. think that would have been featured on some news articles. Or, I mean, there would have been online articles even. Maybe not front page news, but at least somewhere in the newspaper it should or have gotten At the very least, mention. the Savannah local news. Yeah. Because they have local news stations in Savannah or Atlanta's news stations. But I couldn't find anything. So oh. I, I have a feeling that story might be folklore and just used on ghost tours to make it a little more interesting. Uh, and here on Southern Haunts Fatality, we like to give you the facts if we can find them. I like to share that story just because it is interesting and scary and it's probably what you would hear if you went on a ghost tour. But I also want to make sure that it actually happened and something like that being found so recent compared to a lot of our stories. It's odd that I couldn't find any actual articles, newspaper articles or online articles that it really happened. If you think about it, not everybody loves haunted things as much as we do. And 
Perhaps whoever was running the hotel at the time could see that as negatively impacting people coming and staying at the hotel. So Maybe. perhaps they kept it hush-hush. I was also thinking, too, assuming they did toss limbs down there, wouldn't it smell pretty nasty for a while? Because, I mean, they were tossing them down there during the Civil War. By the 90, 1990s, not 1890s, they were just bones. But like, for a while in between, wouldn't it smell really bad? Like, even post-Civil War, wouldn't they have smelled it when they're like, war's over, let's use it as a hotel. Why does it smell so bad up here? That's a good point. Because I don't know how long it takes for those to decompose to be just bones where they would be probably odorless but it seems like it would take a while because they're not like outside they're inside of a building and stuff because i really enjoy true crime also i do know that if you pour lye on stuff it can kind of keep the smells down to a minimum but this was in the basement no it was under the floorboards on one of the uh, floors i think it was one of the upper floors they just put it under the floorboards so it's kind of like you know, above a ceiling, below a floorboard type of thing, because it was on one of the upper floors of the hotel. Whenever it all started decaying, how could it not leak out of there and like create super nasty little like... Yeah, there could be someone staying in the room below and it's like, I got a drip in my ceiling. Oh God. Yeah. No, I don't know. It definitely seems like it could be just a good story because it doesn't seem as possible. I think so too, but I I still want to mention it, but it does seem a little far-fetched to me. And it seems like there's a lack of information backing it up. And there would have been other signs to suggest it really happened, like a stench that went on for quite a while. Maybe it was just like some fingers or toes and not like a lot of limbs. Yeah, it's possible. (laughs) So I'd mentioned this story, not just because it's gross and we like to hear about those kinds of crazy (laughs) stories, but I mentioned this because numerous guests of the hotel have claimed to see ghosts of amputee soldiers walking around aimlessly through the halls. One of the amputees has even been sighted in the lobby carrying his missing arm and pleading with guests to help find a surgeon. Oh, sad. Yeah, that'd be pretty sad to see. It'd be scary to see. It'd be horrifying, but so sad. Yeah. Additionally, a woman who stayed at the hotel claims to have woken up to see a Civil War soldier standing at the foot of her bed, missing an arm. Oh my goodness. Just creeping. Ghosts aside, guests have also complained of a foul odor. Modern day guests have complained of a foul odor. Maybe it's the ghost of the rotting arm smell? Well, they've described it as smelling like rotting flesh. Ah. Maybe some limbs under the floorboard? Maybe. Oh, maybe they did such a good job boxing in the smell back then that the limbs are coming back and trying to spread their smell around to make sure that they're found. They're being haunted by limbs. And smells. And just smells, yeah. It's a haunted smell. You do hear stories, though, about like uh, a lot of like lore says like demons have like a sulfur smell, right? That's true. Yeah, so it's like on a lot of shows and stuff, they say, oh, if you smell that, it could be like a demon, like the rotting egg smell. But I think that would be different than rotting flesh smell. Agreed. And there's different activity linked to that, I would say. But there can be paranormal smells, it would seem. Yeah, because like with my story, there was the cigar smoke in the library that was always smelled. Oh, yeah, that's right. All right, so regarding the limbs under the floorboard and the foul odor, I have a quote from someone who worked at the hotel who actually described the smell. So I thought it'd be interesting to listen to their description of the smell. And I'm going to read it starting now. I'm not going to edit their quote or summarize. I'm going to read exactly as they said it. All right. So the quote, when they were first renovating the hotel and opening it it in 1999, three rooms had foul smells and bad vibes. So overpowering that workers and staff could not stay in them long enough to get anything done. Rooms 214, 314 and 414 with 414 being the worst and i think it's still very active today they tried every deodorizer they could get a hold of and nothing worked 
Finally, they had prayer slash blessings in those rooms, and the smell and vibes relented, with only with 414 still having a persisting odor and vibes. Staff is said to play gospel music in that room when they are cleaning it because it's the only thing that keeps the vibes and the odor at bay. That's crazy. That person was all about vibes. Did he say what the smell was? He didn't describe the smell specifically, but a lot of other guests did describe it, and the general consensus was it was the smell of rotting flesh. Ugh. I feel like this is probably a more recent uh, interview or quote. I think so. Because of the vibes reference. Yeah, probably. I mean, it was definitely in the 2000s because he was talking about in 1999. So I don't know what year in the 2000s, if it was 2001 or 2020, but it, mm-hmm. it was recent compared to Civil War times. So. As long as the vibes are no longer off. Yeah, it's good vibes now. <laughs> so if you want to book a foul-smelling haunted room at a hotel, I would request room 414 when you visit. If we go there and you make me stay in that room, I'm going to be so angry. If 414 is not available, I don't even want to go. Oh, no. Honestly, though, I was thinking about it, and I bet that room books years out because there's so many paranormal enthusiasts, and there's been so many accounts of ghosts and just activity in that room. People are probably booking it way out just to hope they experience something. I hope so, so you can't make me stay there. Maybe we'll check in the off-season. We don't live too far from Savannah. So the idea of room 414 being the most haunted is not based on just this account. There's a lot of other accounts suggesting 414 is the most haunted and most paranormally active room at the hotel. And I have another firsthand account I want to read. And it was actually written as a review of the hotel by a mother and daughter who stayed in room 414. And a lot of the stuff I'll be reading today are quotes from people, but the quotes are actually reviews of the hotel they're not like some paranormal site they're like on the hotel's website these are like these are reviews of people's stays all right so here's the review wait before you get into the reviews did these people want to experience haunted things while they were there like did they stay in the scary rooms on purpose i don't know i don't know if they stayed there on purpose or not i mean there were a couple of them i I didn't include them all because they were just too many but there were a couple who's like i didn't know anything about this hotel and i stayed here and all these weird things happened then i looked it up and found out it's haunted but Yeah, I don't know on a lot of these if they chose that room Hmm. and that hotel for the haunting or if they just happened to be there visiting Savannah and didn't know anything about it. It would be a really funny, like, not funny for the people staying there, but funny for the people who work the front desk to put the people who are completely unexpecting it to be haunted whatsoever in the worst haunted rooms. That'd be pretty cruel. That would be cruel. Okay, so here's the quote from the mother and daughter who stayed in room 414. My daughter and I had a blast staying at the Marshall House. We stayed in room 414, which is reported to be haunted. That makes me think they probably meant to be there. Mm. We had no experience the first night. The second night, Noelle, which I assume is the daughter, heard footsteps around the room at night, and she saw and heard the bathroom door close in the middle of the night by itself. She had assumed it was me going to the bathroom, but I never did. I woke up hearing footsteps in the room and thought it was Noelle moving around until I saw she was actually in bed sleeping. It was such a cool historic place. We will be back. (laughs) <laughs> no absolutely not it's kind of a funny review i think they were there to experience it for sure the way she read the review it's like she was definitely looking for some ghosts because she seemed the way her review read seemed too excited about it they were way too excited to experience yeah. something horrifying i hope the daughter's as into it as the mom is though because she might be like can we just go somewhere like a beach that's not haunted <laughs> why do we got to keep staying at these haunted houses mom oh yeah for sure she's probably gonna scar her daughter <laughs> Now, it's not exactly clear to me why 414 is the most haunted room, although many people have pegged it as the most haunted, but I did find some information suggesting why the upper floors of the hotel in general tend to have the most haunting activities. 
According to some accounts, the fourth floor of the hotel was the preferred area for amputations. Hmm. Do you know why that might be? Absolutely no idea. Well, the reason is because it's the furthest from the street level, so people passing by below won't hear the screams. Oh. So that's pretty sad. (laughs) That's so sad. But it makes sense. I guess. So that's pretty chilling. Other paranormal activity has been reported in the fourth floor's hallways. Guests have reported hearing loud noises that tend to take place during the early morning hours. The noises have been described as the thundering of a heavy object crashing to the ground. Another common occurrence is doorknobs wiggling as if someone is attempting to enter your room. I hate that. That would be terrifying because like I'd be scared it's a real person trying to kill you or something. Yeah. A ghost would be scary too, but the other might be scarier. Real humans can hurt you. Well, not that ghosts aren't real, but living people can definitely hurt you. So at the site of the old operating room on the fourth floor, guests have seen doctors treating soldiers who have been recently brought in from the battlefield. Some guests have even claimed to feel a presence holding onto their wrist as a nurse would do to feel for someone's pulse. Interesting. Actually being like touched by a ghost. That's a, that'd be a weird feeling. That would be weird. So while the fourth floor and room 414 seem to be the most haunted in general, the entire hotel has its fair share of stories. With the Marshall House being a popular hotel in Savannah, as I was mentioning earlier, there are just too many ghost stories for me to even cover in this. Hmm. Um, so I definitely would encourage you to check it out online and go to the hotel's website. They have a lot on their website alone. Uh, but there's been all kinds of paranormal investigations there and high-profile ones that are on TV. There's a ton of ghost stories there. As far as ghost stories for the rest of the hotel, I want to just pick a few to cover in this case, and I'll have a few more quotes from the rest of the hotel outside of just the fourth floor. All right, so let's get into it. So guests have reported seeing numerous ghosts in the hallways and foyers, faucets turning on and off by themselves, lights flickering, electronic items powering themselves, toilets suddenly overflowing for no reason, disembodied voices echoing throughout the halls, a lady in white has even been spotted moving about the hallways, and another lady apparently haunts the women's restroom and occasionally likes to lock stalls on people. Oh, that's horrible. I wonder, I mean, do people go in and not lock their stall? Interesting. Maybe she locks it and then they're like trying to get in, but there's no one in there. Maybe that's what it is. I'm worried that it's when you're trying to get out oh, and you're that locked could be. in. You like unlock it and then she locks it on you. Yeah. And it then could be. you just can't unlock it even if you do the little latch or yeah. whatever. The door just won't open. I didn't think about it first. Then when I read it, I was like, well, maybe that's nice ever. People like forgot to lock their stall. And she's like, there you go. It would be nice if she was a nice ghost. I hope it's not the version that I'm thinking of. Yeah, or she's locking all the stalls and someone's like, I got a piece so bad, but they're all full or something. They're all <laughs> locked. But there's no one in there. Oh, yeah. That could be it. That could be. We need more information. There are also countless reports of apparitions of small children lingering around the hotel, which I don't know about you, but I always find small children ghosts to be extra creepy. I don't know if it's because I watched The Omen growing up and it really scared me. He's not a ghost, but he is a very scary child. But That seems scary to me. Children are either very sad and sweet or absolutely horrifying. It's definitely like one or the other. Well, I have a little bit of both for this. Oh, boy. Yeah, so a lot of apparitions of small children are seen lingering around the hotel. Um, The laughter and playful voices of children has been reported by numerous guests who stayed at the hotel. Guests have even spotted these ghostly children skipping, running, and playing games throughout the hallways. In fact, at nighttime, the sounds of marbles and rubber balls can be heard rolling and bouncing in the hallways. Yet there are no actual marbles or rubber balls out there, just the sound of them. And on that note, I have another guest review I want to read. My fiancé and I stayed at the Marshall House for one night over the summer. At the time, we didn't know its history and just saw that it was a cool hotel for a pretty inexpensive price point on Expedia. Oh no. That night, laying in bed and watching TV, we heard what we assumed were families out in the hall. 
It sounded like a lot of children running around and people talking very loudly, which was odd for 12 a.m. However, when I looked out, there wasn't anyone there. We heard the same sounds intermittently until we fell asleep. I wouldn't call the experience scary, just weird. Oh my God. <laughs> that was the couple, I guess, who's like, didn't know anything. Seemed like a cool hotel. It's close to my favorite bar type oh. of thing. <laughs> At least it wasn't happening in their room. Bad vibes, man. Bad vibes. <laughs> All right, and I have another story about a mother and son who stay at the hotel. This isn't a quote, just kind of a summarized story. The boy's mother was in the bedroom and her son was in the bathroom, playing and talking to himself. Instant creepy. Mm-hmm. Her son then came out of the bathroom crying, and she asked him what was wrong. He replied, the boy bit me. The mother was confused because her son was alone, so she asked, what boy? Her son replied, the one who I was playing with in the bathroom. The boy's mother quickly went to look in the bathroom and didn't see the boy her son was talking about. But when she looked at her son's arm, she found that there was indeed a bite mark. She later found out that this was not the first case of strange bites at the Marshall House. Oh my god. There have been other guests who have been inflicted with a child-sized bite mark, and all the bites were done with so much force that all the bitten people had a bruise. Wow. Furthermore, all the people who were bitten were said to have been bitten in an area of their body that wouldn't have been impossible for them to reach unless they were some sort of contortionist. Oh. So someone else is biting these people. Like on your elbow where you can't get? Yeah, like he was bitten on his arm. So I thought like maybe like on the very like your elbow, like you said, or like the very back of your upper arm or somewhere like that where you just couldn't reach. Because hmm. like even a kid couldn't reach that. I mean, maybe like a baby could, but. You wouldn't be able to bite with much force if you just were trying to reach that part. No. no. Either way, some ghostly child supposedly is biting people there. All of the no. Yeah, I wouldn't like that. That'd be no. the worst. Yes. Given that there were so many first-person accounts, I feel like that was kind of the best way to describe the ghost stories there, to hear it straight from people who actually experienced these things. So I have a lot of these in my story. I have just one more I want to do before... I close out my story of the Marshall House because I feel like this one is kind of a longer review, but it kind of summarized all the haunted stuff there. These people apparently experienced a little bit of everything. Oh, no. Or maybe, oh, yay. Maybe they like it. Maybe, yeah. I don't know what they're there for. Huh. All right. So here's the quote. I never got much sleep while we were there. I always felt very uneasy and utterly creeped out at night in my guts and could not rest. I did hear some strange noises in the hall late at night, around 3 a.m. usually. And it sounded like a hard rubber ball rolling along the hallway and bouncing. And it also sounded like a marble rolling and bouncing, as well as a very loud crash in the hall around 3 a.m.-ish. Hmm. And I'm reading these quotes exactly. I'm not just saying 3 a.m.-ish. That's how they actually said it. Uh, the sound was almost like a body falling and hitting the floor and no one was out there, which that could make sense, right? Because I was trying to, people were describing earlier that they commonly hear a loud crash on the upper floor. And I thought, what would that even be? Like it wasn't in battle there. So it wouldn't be like a cannonball, but like a doctor throwing like a dead body, like off of a stretcher into a, under their floorboards, apparently. Or so. maybe somebody passing out from loss of blood. Or and that. Just yeah. Had it's a like, limb so taken off. that seems like a reasonable explanation. I thought is like the yeah. sound of a body. That could be it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Back to the quote. We also heard what sounded like walking around on the floor above us, but above us, there was only roof. Also, we experienced a very unnerving feeling of being touched while in bed at night, and I was completely awake. I was touched on the inside of my lower leg slash ankle and buttocks area. Don't like that. This made me nearly jump out of my bed more than once. On the last night we stayed there, we noticed a strange smell in our room and in the bathroom, and we couldn't find a source for it. It was almost like a burned flesh smell combined with a slight sewery odor. Oh. 
we would like to hear from more people who have a strange less otherly world experience at this location. Huh. I read that review and I was kind of wondering, it's like, do you think they made it up? Because it's like, they literally covered everything at the hotel almost. Like they either actually had all these experiences or they read about all the haunted things there and they just covered it all. <laughs> Maybe it just goes to show that it does happen. Maybe. Like, frequently. There's just so many first person accounts though. It's like, I feel like if you stay there, there's a good chance you might experience something. Seems like it. Yeah. One thing, it does bother me that they say that the noise at like 3 a.m. is a loud crash when I feel like if it's a body falling on the ground, it would be more of a thud. Perhaps. Because crash, I picture somebody holding like a tray of surgical instruments or something and then that dropping. Oh, that could be. But if it was a body, it should be like a thud instead of a crash. For some reason, I don't know why, because it's the most unlikely thing. But every time I think of a crash, I think of a piano being dropped. But that probably doesn't actually happen in real life that much. Probably mostly a cartoon thing. Mm, cartoons didn't prepare us for the real world as much as we had hoped. Apparently not. I think after reading that review, that pretty much summed up all the stuff that happened there. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up my story this week for the Marshall House. What do you think? Should we book a room on the fourth floor? Absolutely not. See if we experience any foul smells or ghostly bites you had better have another room booked somewhere else because if anything spooky happens to me i am going to be needing to get out of that hotel asap maybe to cover all the bases we should stay in separate rooms at the marshall house are you kidding me i could never sleep by myself absolutely not we could do like a little our first live paranormal investigation could be at the marshall house no i already booked it <laughs> no you did not no just kidding okay good but i'd like to I would like to go on a vacation where I can sleep comfortably at night. This wouldn't be vacation. This would be work because we're podcasting. You're right. Business expense, probably. I guess I can forego sleep for work. Exactly. <laughs> but I better get a good dinner out of this. Deal. Done. All right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up our episode this week. You got anything else to add there, Blake? I believe that is everything. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another Southern Haunts Fatality. Be sure to like, follow, subscribe. And hopefully we'll see you again next week. Bye. Bye.